I'm Dr. Josefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Parshat B'Shalach begins as the Israelites leave Egypt and ends with the war against Amalek. In this light, on their way to freedom, the nation is flanked by military obstacle. The emotion of regret also features central in our Parsha. First, God is concerned that the people might regret their exit from Egypt and thus takes them on a different route farther from Egyptian troop encampments. And next, we learn that Paro and his servants regret their allowance of the Israelites' exit. The chase is on until the Egyptians are sunk into the depths of the ocean, while the Israelites walk through safely to the other side. After the miraculous sea crossing, we meet a series of complaints as the people begin their travels in the desert. Not enough water, not enough food, not enough meat, not enough water. Again, this initial exit is really disheartening. The transition into a new supernatural existence requires more effort and faith than they anticipated. It feels a bit like boot camp, or tirunut in Hebrew, and like most young soldiers report, it's a pretty disastrous moment in time as one adjusts to an entirely new circumstance however temporary it may be. This is because the change is not merely physical for the people of Israel, from a land of plenty to the desert's desolation, but also theological. They have supplanted a human master for a monotheistic relationship with God, which will take most of the biblical period to solidify. Today, I am honored to welcome back to the podcast, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, whose work I have quoted in many past episodes when he wasn't even a guest. Dr. Berman is a professor of Bible study at Bar-Ilan University, and he frequently lectures at Matan Beit Shemesh, and is the author of multiple books on Tanakh, such as Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, Narrative Analogy in the Hebrew Bible, Battle Stories, and their Equivalent Non-Battle Narratives, Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism, and Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. The truth is that today's topic of conversation really combines the topics of all of his books into one. Battle stories, ancient Near East, inconsistencies in the Torah, and the concept of historical truth. Dr. Berman, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here on the podcast. Thank you, and it's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with, uh, with you and with the Matan audience. So the truth is, is that because our series is really focused on commentators, I think we are best to begin our conversation today speaking about one of our modern, relatively modern commentators who really uh, demonstrates, even creates precedent for, for this kind of method of study that we're going to be speaking about today. And so our prism for today is... Casuto, uh, also a name that my guests have heard before, as I'm a, quite a big fan. So why don't we why don't we jump into that? Why don't you speak to us a little bit about why why you think Casuto is a good opening for this conversation? Right, Casuto is really a, a unique figure uh, in the history of of, uh, of of biblical of biblical commentary generally, and particularly within <clears throat> within Jew, within Jewish commentary and rabbinic commentary. Casuto is is uh, Italian born. Uh, in the latter part of the, of the 19th century, and uh, it's a little bit—it's important to understand a little bit about what what that means. Uh, Italian Jewry in the late 19th century is uh, very worldly and uh, uh, intellectually very engaged with uh, with with Italian culture and with uh, university culture and history and literature and arts and philosophy, and that means that that even uh, uh, people who are Orthodox, because many Italian Jews even in the 19th century were no longer Orthodox, 
But even those that were Orthodox were still really being raised in this, what we would call today a very Torah Umada mindset. Uh, um, uh, and uh, this is the type of education that, that Tesudo receives, uh, a, Torah, a Torah education, but also a broad education. For him, the two go together. What sets him apart from someone like, let's say, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch is an issue in, with regard to the nature of their uh, uh, Tanakh commentary um, uh, is, is an issue of, uh, of what part of the 19th century we're talking about. Uh, Hirsch, of course, was the early part of the 19th century. And Kasudo, uh, I don't remember exactly what year he was born. I guess, I guess, I don't know, 1870s, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the importance of this is that uh, by the time Kasudo is, uh, uh, you know, mature and studying, studying Torah and studying in the academy, uh, the world has, the, the wider world has caught on to the ancient Near East. Uh, that is, uh, in, in Hirsch's time, nobody knew anything about the ancient Near East. You know, the earliest uh, uh, translations of Akkadian were like in the 1850s and uh, really got going in the 1870s and, 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 and later than that. Uh, so Hirsch had no notion of the ancient Near East, and you'll never see any reference to anything in the ancient Near East in his commentary. But Kasudo uh, was exposed to all this, and he was really the first uh, uh, Jewish commentator to have a sense that, wow, you know, this stuff is really amazing. This is, uh, it, it, it gives us a whole new context with which to understand Kitbeya Kodesh, large issues and small, thematic theological issues, philological issues, issues of realia, you know, history and fauna and all these sorts of things. And uh, he really went, 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 to, went to the plate on this and, you know, just to kind of dove in and, and mastered uh, Akkadian and especially Ugaritic. And uh, this really animates much of his, uh, much of his commentary and allows, allows uh, new, new perspectives on very large questions, especially things like, uh, uh, you know, the style of the Tanakh. Why do we have stories that are repeated? Why do we have stories that are that are uh, uh, seem to be perhaps uh, in contradiction with one another? So this really opened up a lot of a lot of uh, new new vistas for rabbinic rabbinic commentary. So uh, we're speaking about Kasuto as being uh, someone who really had that access to the ancient Near Eastern materials. But right. I guess I have two thoughts in response. One is that we do have earlier commentators. I even just taught a commentary yesterday in class of Ibn Ezra, whose mentions. I mean, it was again, not the same body of work because it wasn't physically discovered, but him conferring or looking at books that he had that he thought were relatively representational in that case of, of Egyptian names in the, in the case of the right. name of Moshe. Right. And, and so that's interesting because we do have other commentators, uh, Rel Bag and I think a few others, who do seem to sort of like confer with other sources. And the other thought I have in response is that we often today will hear about, you know, somebody using ancient Near Eastern sources, and it obviously stems from the world of academia. But what's interesting about Kasuto is that in many ways, he actually felt that the ancient Near Eastern norms and familiarity with that world in many ways could help combat a lot of the findings that were being that were being uh, shared, discussed, and argued over in biblical criticism. So while someone who's a little bit further away from this world will sort of look at ancient Near Eastern study and biblical criticism and say, oh, it all just comes from the academy, and they, all, they do present significant challenges to uh, the religious student of Tanakh, 
in one in an interesting regard, Casuto actually felt that one of them uh, was much more valid than the other in terms of its its genuine connection to to Tanakh as we have it. So uh, you could maybe choose to speak to either of those points, but they both were sort of coming up for me as you were describing Casuto's approach. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, Casuto isn't the first uh, to ever uh, access something from the ancient world. I think if you if you look throughout, I, I think you would probably find nearly every major parshan does this at one point or another across his entire parsh, you know, Perush to, you know, Chumash or to Navi. Uh, all, you know, all, all of the, all of the major mafarshim of, uh, of, of, uh, of the Middle Ages. Uh, the question is, what do they really have access to? Even they knew they had access to very little. Uh, the, the, uh, the outstanding uh, uh, exception to this, and even he was very little, was the Rambam. The Rambam deliberately says in, 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 uh, uh, in the third part of, uh, I think we probably touched on this in a previous episode together. Uh, as he goes through the Tamiyah Mitzvot, the reasons for the different commandments, uh, time and again, especially when he's re- referencing things having to do with the Bet Mitash or having to do with the Mishkan or the Korbanot, uh, the Rambam will say, oh, well, I got hold of books about ancient Near Eastern cultic practices, and I see that this is what they did there. And I can see from that what the Torah is doing, somehow tweaking or advancing or modifying to some degree so that it was, you know, working within the the, 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 the the touchstones of what they were familiar with, but bringing it to a, a pure or a higher a higher level. Uh, so this precedent for this, what 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 makes Kasuto exceptional is that suddenly he had this, you know, uh, uh, incredible treasure of riches of knowledge of the ancient Near East, which you know, which is exponentially more. Than everything that everyone before him knew all put together. And so therefore it makes, in theory, his ability to draw out the parallels or explain different concepts or phraseology that we have in the Torah to explain it more accurately, perhaps, in terms of right. how it was right. first received. Maybe we could to also touch upon this idea about, you know, I, I believe that Kasuto really believed that the Pshat of the Torah is how the initial generation understood, right? How they received it, how they would have heard it, right? Every mm-hmm. phrase or every idea speaks differently. It rings differently in the ears of of the listener of that generation. And so he really placed tremendous mm-hmm. emphasis on on the way that it would have been received initially. It doesn't mean that there isn't an eternality. It doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to speak to us, but that you can't ignore the initial layer, if it will even just minimize it and call it that, but the initial layer of what the Torah was meant to say, speak, and convey, and how that was meant to be heard by the by those who first received it. I guess I'm curious to to ask you, I think that the the gains or the advantage of studying the Torah in light of the ancient Near Eastern material, I, I think the gains are somewhat obvious. And I think also we've touched upon in an earlier conversation in Parshat Mishpatim, where we spoke about the parallels to the ancient treaties and how that really influences understanding and many textual anomalies that we have surrounding the concept of Brit in the Torah. I'm curious though, as someone who of course you have a very strong foot in the academy, what what do you think might be the pitfalls of studying Torah in light of these materials? Before we get to a very specific oh, idea, I, you I, have. <laughs> I, I, I've seen the the, the 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 pitfalls right in front of my face. Sometimes I give over this material, and literally, I have uh, people come over to me in tears, in tears that I am destroying their emuna. And it isn't because I said something like, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu never existed or God doesn't or, you know, anything that, that and it's not that the content itself violates any precept that you and I would recognize as, you know, one of the uh, uh, fundamentals of, of, of Torah faith. It's more that when when I begin to say, oh, look at this, Brit Sinai, you know, 
if you understand that the model here is of a sovereign king and a vassal king, and they work as you know together as a senior and junior partner, all the things that you know that we talked about uh, uh, when we discussed Brit Sinai that I think are really beautiful and how theologically this was so advanced for the time. But the more that you say, hey, look, you know, you can see phrases from this clay tablet and you can see similar phrases in the Torah. For some people, that is devastating. It's devastating for some people. I would say it's usually people that come from a kind of a Beis Yaakov background. And I don't say that with any disparagement, Khalila, to Beis Yaakov. What I mean by that simply is just what, just what it suggests. Uh, an environment where the Torah is totally in its own world. There, the way in which the Ribbon Shalom communicates with us is unlike any other form of communication. And so any attempt to say that the Torah is using idioms from an ancient time just makes the Torah clunky. It seems to bring it down from the type of uh, you know, ethereal reality that, they had, that this is you know, the way in which in many circles uh, the Torah is presented. Uh, and because, precisely because the parallels are so strong, they can't just diss it and say, well, I don't agree. They see it. They see it. But it, it doesn't fit with the worldview that they've been given. And so sometimes sometimes uh, I, I run into that. And then what I try to show is, look, you know, with these tools, we can actually see the brilliance of the Torah and how, how you know, light years, literally ahead of its time, it was in so many things. Uh, uh, in, in terms of its values, not just, you know, now we understand this phrase or that phrase. Um, so that that's sometimes a challenge. That's sometimes a challenge. I think that uh, another element that often challenges people, and, and I mostly teach Israeli, so it's not the same base Yaakov concept, but mm -hmm. I have many who this mm -hmm. will be difficult for. And I think that a part of it is also that, as you said, it sort of like brings it down and it takes it out of its like, mm -hmm. you know, enshrinement in, in the clouds. And another element of it that I think often comes, especially when you talk about parallels to ancient Near Eastern laws, is that people have a concept that to be unique, you have to be the only and once you've taken Torah out of the category of being the only, right? Because to you and I, it's very, very exciting, right? To see how to the relationships between these these different worlds and how the Torah adds and shapes and creates its own shade. But to many people, that goes against their their concept of what it means to be unique. Unique means to be mm -hmm. the only one. If to not, if one second, if we're not the only culture that ever had, you know, uh, holidays on the fourteenth of the month, then clearly something is 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 just no longer super and wonderful about our chagim. Mm -hmm. I think that's something else that often comes up in those conversations. And part of what I what I speak about, and again, in the in the in the worlds that I meet, and, and you in the worlds that you meet, is this idea that. We never exist in a vacuum. And if we think we exist in a vacuum is because our eyes haven't really been open to the broader reality of how civilizations and cultures live, mesh, borrow from one another, uh, and that ultimately you can re-fall in love if you feel like you've fallen out of love or you've been sort of disillusioned um, by seeing those relationships. But anyways, I think that that point about not being the only is also one that people often have a very, very hard time with. Yeah, and what, what surprises me about that, Yosef, is that Ruf Cook didn't have any leanings in that direction. He went totally the other way. They were says in many places. He has a book that, that came out relatively later, uh, posthumously, um, uh, where he raises a lot of these sensitive topics. And he says there, yeah, you know, it could well be that the Torah, you know, incorporates laws that appeared in earlier law, ancient law collections. And 
anything that the Torah saw, that, that the Torah or the Kaddish Baruch Hu thought was good, gets incorporated. Lamalo, why not? On that note, I would love to sort of inch closer to a pretty monumental essay that you wrote in Mosaic Magazine that had to do with uh, our Parsha and with the parallels between, I would say, the story of the Exodus in general, but particularly uh, the the story of Shiratayam, the the song at the sea and the defeat of the Egyptians uh, at the sea, uh, with some very significant and well-known in their own context, uh, texts from the ancient Near East. So why don't we talk about that? And of course, we'll be guided by some of the principles that we've already started speaking speaking about in this conversation. Right. So um, in, in the 1930s, scholars, not Jewish, just scholars, Bible scholars, noticed something really interesting. Um, uh, scholars always, scholars have, a, I would say, a predilection, a tendency uh, uh, when they read the Torah, they want to know, well, what, what else, what is this similar to in the ancient world? In other words, they don't necessarily assume that it's divine or, 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 or unique. Uh, they assume Israel was, you know, one culture running around in ancient times like many others. And so they're constantly looking for these types of connections. Uh, one of the, th- one, scholars in the 1930s, uh, wanted to know what what is the what is the mishkan similar to that's out there what do we see and they couldn't find shrines or temples that you know were tents that had these two types of chambers you know a smaller chamber and a larger chamber and then they stumbled across uh, uh, um, a bunch of illustrations uh, uh, that were commissioned by Ramses II Ramses II also known as Ramses the Great uh, uh, was the greatest pharaoh of uh, ancient Egypt. He ruled for 70 years, and Egypt was at its at its uh, 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 at its zenith at the time. And he had one major major achievement, as he saw it: this a major battle uh, against his arch enemy at the time, the Hittite Empire, which resided in modern day Turkey. And they were kind of you know you can think of it as kind of you know the two superpowers like the United States and the Soviet Union, and uh, uh, both were kind of vying for control over all sorts of little countries, just like we had in the Cold War. The little countries at stake were all of little countries or little principalities located in what we call Eretz Canaan and modern day Lebanon and Syria. So he has this massive battle at a place called Kadesh, which is on the border between Lebanon and Syria, uh, having nothing to do with Kadesh in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Chomesh, Kadesh, but it's a different Kadesh. And scholars think that this was probably the uh, the largest uh, chariot battle in all of history, anywhere, because both the Egyptians and the Hittites write about it. So it probably happened. Uh, who won? Well, that depends who you ask. The Egyptians are certain that they won. The Hittites are less certain about what happened. One can draw with that from that what one wants. What's important to me here is not what actually happened at the uh, uh, at the Battle of Kadesh, but what is important to me is what Ramses tries to promulgate. Uh, through propaganda when he returns home to Egypt. This is in 1274 BCE. And in at least 10 sites across Egypt that we know about, because uh, obviously not everything has survived, much has survived, but not everything has survived. We have at least 10 different sites where he has put up inscriptions and I would say base reliefs, like comics, illustrations of the battle, different stages of the battle. And what you see in the, the illustrations is that it, his, his throne tent, what we would call in Hebrew his chapak, 
is Chadar Pikud. In other words, the throne, the, the tent from which he led the battle, right? He's there with his troops. Uh, it looks remarkably like the Mishkan. It has two chambers. One has the dimensions of one by one, just like the Kodesh Kodashim does. One has the dimensions of two by one. That's the Kodesh. It's surrounded by a wall. The entrance is from the east. Uh, inside the one by one chamber where he sits, he has these two winged figures that are that are hovering over him, Horus falcons, but the wings look awfully like clothing. And scholars said, well, this is the closest thing that we have ever seen to what the Torah describes as the Mishkan. And we don't find any other throne tents like this anywhere depicted in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, and we don't find any, any shrines that look like the Mishkan. So their, their presumption was, well, it could be that since, after all, the Torah does depict Yitzhak Mitzrayim as a victory over a pharaoh, that what maybe what the Mishkan is, is uh, maybe what the Torah is trying to do, one level of understanding of what the Mishkan is about, is it's a way, it's a way of um, appropriating Egyptian royal propaganda by saying, here, look, what you guys saw all over Egypt in these pictures and these illustrations, these base reliefs, as like the apex of, of Pharaoh Ramses II's power. Here he is at the Battle of Kaddish, and here is his throne, here is his throne tent. Well, now he is overthrown, and God has out-pharaohed the pharaohs, and now uh, it's the Rebona Shalom. It's his tent now, and he is the one who is the, the, the mighty king in the middle of a battle formation, because that is, after all, what B'nai Israel are in the Midbar. It doesn't come out so much in Sefer Shmok, but in Sefer Bamidbar, we clearly understand the Mishkan is surrounded by legions of troops, right? Degel, Machaneh, all that. They're legions of troops. Uh, and so that, that's, that, that was something that, uh, that, that really struck my fancy. Uh, and, and what I wanted to do was say, okay, wow, if the Mishkan is, is uh, one level of understanding about the Mishkan, is patterned after the throne tent of Ramses II, what else might there be for us to discover here? That is, these inscriptions that Ramses put up were not only pictorial, they were also written. So let's go read what does, what does Ramses say happened there at the Battle of Kadesh. And uh, uh, what, what I discerned, at least for myself and some others, I guess, because they published the work, have found it at least interesting enough to publish, including the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, was that the Battle of Kadesh unfolds in a way that step by step, like 17 parallel steps, seems to unfold in a very similar way to what we have depicted for us in this week's Parsha uh, in Shemot Perik Yudalit and Tetvav, the fleeing from the Egyptians, the episode of the crossing of the sea, and then Shirat Hayam. Uh, that, that's, that's the basic, that's the basic contention here. We can talk about some of the, you know, the major points that are, that are similar and some of the, some of the phrases that are similar, but that, that that's, that's the main, that's the basic, uh, uh, contention. Okay. So before I sort of have broader questions to ask about that, I would like mm -hmm. to understand some of the specific parallels between sure. specifically, again, the flee from Egypt and, sure. and the, and the Shiratayam. I think that would be very, uh, right. Meaningful right. okay. for this. Person. So let me let me let me let me, summar, let me summarize what what the uh, uh, the Kaddish poem of Ramses II, which describes these events. I'll 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 tell it to you, and you you and, and readers will be able to kind of check off. Oh yeah, that's similar to to this thing in 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 this week's parsha, one after another. So the story there goes that uh, 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 Ramses and his troops head north, right, to meet up with the Hittites at at Kaddish. Suddenly, as they approach the city, they are set upon by a mass attack of chariots. Okay, a mass attack of chariots. 
and they are so um, 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 uh, unprepared for this and and uh, uh, flummoxed by it that his troops totally despair and they run away. Okay, much like what we have in our parsha. And then Ramses is left all alone. Now, if you were alone facing twenty five hundred chariots, what would you do? Well, if you're if you're Ramses, you pray. You pray. So he turns to God. He turns to his God, Amun. And his God, Amun, says, I am with you. Go forward and you will be victorious. Just like Hashem says, you know, uh, 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 just go forward and I am with you. You're going to be victorious. And uh, then what we have is that uh, uh, it says that uh, he began to uh, shoot his arrows and and uh, take down all the chariots. It says that the chariots, the charioteers, to try to get away from his arrows, would jump into the river. There's a river around Kadesh, the Orantes River, and, and they all drowned in the river, or many of them drowned in the river. In fact, the illustrations show corpses floating in the river. And it says whoever would get, whoever would get up to look around him would be struck down, and not a single one of them was left, just like we find with the Mitzri. In fact, the, the, the Hittites say, it says that the Hittites called out to one another, oh no, look, it is the god Sechmet, one of the Egyptian gods, who is with them? Just like it says, you know, the, the Mitzrayim said, oh, Hashem nilcham b'Mitzrayim. God is, is fighting against, against Egypt. And then we come to like what's the, really just the most incredible parallel. It says that uh, after the Hittites were defeated, so Ramsey's troops saw that there was no more fighting going on. And so they came back and they saw all the corpses. And then it says they, they saw Ramsey's mighty hand. And they had fear and awe for Ramses. And then they began to sing a, 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 a hymn of praise to him. And this is exactly what we have at the end of Parakutal, that, that Bnei Yisrael, Vayar Yisrael Mitzrayim met asfatayam, Bnei Yisrael saw the, the corpses of Mitzrayim at the edge of the sea, and they saw the Yad Agdullah, they saw Hashem's great hand, and they had fear, and they had great fear for a Kaddish Baruch and then they started a Shira. And then you look at the at the the, the, the Egyptians hymn of hymn H Y M N hymn of praise to uh, 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 to Ramses, and it says, "Oh, you are the one who who makes us uh, uh, valiant of heart." You have been our salvation, and it speaks about uh, everyone knows your name. You are a mighty warrior, and it says, "Who is who is great like Ramses? You know, like Mika Mocha." You know, or your 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 great your your right hand does this and your great hand does that. You know, In fact, it even says there uh, a few lines earlier, uh, you consume them like chaff. And we don't find that anywhere else in any other ancient Near Eastern writing. And the amazing thing is, is that the the rest of the the hymn is no longer about the battle against the Hittites. It says, okay, and then once the battle was over, uh, Ramses packed up his camp and turned back south, right, towards Egypt. And as he marched home, all the nations around were trembling in front of him. And when he arrived at his palace, the gods gave him uh, a million jubilees to, to reign forever and ever. And, you know, this is much like what we have in Shirat Hayam. We think Shirat Hayam is about, is about Kriyat Yamsuf. That's true, but that's only the first half. The first half of, of, of Shirat Hayam is about Kriyat Yamsuf. The second half of, of Shirat Hayam is about Hashem leading his troops, his people, towards their final destination. And as they approach Eretz Canaan, you know, it's a uh, Namogu Koyosh Ve'aretz Mipnehem. You know, it's, it's, the, the, the nations are, are, are trembling. 
and then God arrives at, you know, his palace, and then Hashem has a million jubilees. Hashem yimloch le'olam v'ed. So it's, it's just really striking how, 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 how similar these two are. On one hand, it's interesting because whenever we speak about parallels between texts, so we always have to take into account that there are cert, there is a certain degree of stock language, right? Or stock images where, well, if you're fighting and there's chariots, you're going to talk about chariots. However, I th- mm-hmm. what seems to be the element that is most uh, striking, as you said, right, is particularly, first of all, the structure or the uh, the percentage of how much is describing the miracle and how much is describing the responses to the mm-hmm. miracle and also mm-hmm. particular language, as you said, that simply isn't found anywhere else that makes this parallel kind of mm-hmm. impossible mm-hmm. To, to deny. Uh, I think it's interesting, mm-hmm. which is that when you place these two texts next to each other, it really presents the the Torah story as one that's trying to sort of take down Ramses, meaning the threat or, or the shift isn't of the gods of Egypt. They seem to be less significant, but it's really Ramses himself as a figure. Yosef, that's true throughout the Torah. It's so interesting. I don't, I don't remember who was the first to say this. Maybe it was even Kasudo. But it, the following observation is certainly true. In the Torah, Hashem never battles against other gods. He battles against kings. Mm. Because why? Because those gods aren't worth his time? Because he doesn't have to defend himself because against something gods, that's powerless? Because, because the gods don't exist and the kings do. Hmm. Okay, that's a very powerful point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in this parallel, we're really we're really bringing down bringing down Ramses and showing it. Also, by the way, really assumes a term. I wouldn't say a literacy. I wouldn't go that far, but it assumes tremendous familiarity that the initial generations are have with this story. It's also right. just so speaks, let, me, let me let me just speak a little bit about that. That's that's a question the scholars ask. You know, would this have been known? And the answer is yes, it would have been known. Not only do we find it in ten different places across Egypt. The copies of this of this uh, 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 this work called the Kaddish poem of Ramses II have been found in workmen's villages. In other words, in 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 Luxor we have, and in Amarna we have we have uh, villages, the remains of villages, perfectly preserved, of people who were you know digging out the the tombs in the, in the valley of the tombs, uh, the workers who were building all these temples, workmen's villages, you know, pasha to workers, you know, poyalim as, you know, as, as as they say, workers, and. And they found in one of these villages, uh, like kind of a cachet of, of like great works uh, that apparently were read over the campfire at night. So this was kind of like a, a basic indoctrination that even simple people were getting. Uh, and if this, you know, if this was everywhere, if you saw this everywhere, then it got through. Just like billboards, you know, if you have billboards everywhere, people are going to get the point. Wow. So I, again, this is really a significant point because for m- most of the centuries, no one really understood this, right? We sort of missed it. Mm-hmm. It was like a hint that went over mm-hmm. our heads and we found other elements mm-hmm. that were meaningful in, in the text. Mm-hmm. But as you're bringing this to light, you, you're showing that there's tremendous relationship between between these ideas. I, I guess I have uh, a, two questions. One is, and I encourage everybody to read the Mosaic article. It's, it's excellent and, and it's, uh, you know, will be a good review from what you're hearing now. So my first question is regarding what kind of uh, responses you got there. But let me just explain my question for a moment. Because in the article, you really start by describing this big question regarding the historicity of the of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? Which is a bit of a Pandora's box, right? Of did Do we have ex- extra biblical proof, right? Outside of Tanakh, do we have proof that the story actually happened? Uh, and that you sort of go on this long journey showing the relationship between these texts uh, with the assumption that this relationship 
could prove to a certain degree, while you admit that it's very difficult to find that proof and proof in the world of Bible scholarship is not the same as, you know, mm -hmm. something that's more tangible. Geometry. Uh, geometry, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, but that this this relationship can support the the historicity of, of the mm -hmm. Yitzhak Mitzrayim story. Can you sort of unpack that for us a little bit? First, let me say, Yosef, I can already hear in our, in our listening audience murmurings against the, what we're saying here. And I'll tell you what those murmurings are. Some people are saying, okay, Rabbi, so okay, okay, you know, you have all these parallels, but why, why do you think that it was we, or why do you think that it was the Torah that was copying from Ramses? Maybe Ramses copied the Torah. How do you know? When you have parallels, you never know which, which way it goes, so why don't you say it that way? And I want to say why I say it that way, okay? And, 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 and here's the reason. I'll explain it by way of illustration. If I'm speaking to a group and I use the phrase, the bombs bursting in air, okay? I've done this in front of a group of Americans and Brits together, and it's great to watch. You see all the Americans smile. They all know exactly what I'm referring to. And the Brits look at me like, what was that? Why are bombs bursting in there? What, what do you mean by that? So if I am addressing an audience uh, that is British and I want to make some reference and use the phrase, the bombs bursting in air, that will fall flat because British people do not know all the words of the American national anthem the way that Americans do. Put differently, what do we see from this? When anybody, a speaker, a writer, makes an allusion to something, it only works if you can expect that your audience knows what you're talking about. So when speaking to an American audience, you can do that with the bombs bursting in air. And when speaking to a British or an Israeli audience, you cannot. Okay. So now let's think about it. If you have Israelites, slaves, and Egyptian taskmasters, and we, we have all these parallels between these two texts that we've referred to here. It doesn't work the same way both ways. Meaning, if in fact B'nai Israel were enslaved in Mitzrayim, and saw these pictures and heard these stories everywhere they went, then they would be familiar with it. So that when the Torah casts Yitzhak Mitzrayim in this way, B'nai Yisrael get it. We are taking down Ramses. We are saying that he's not powerful. We're saying that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is more powerful than even Ramses was at his own game, using his own propaganda. We're out the Pharaoh. We are appropriating royal propaganda. But conversely, it doesn't work because Egyptians by and large, were not at Kriyat Yamsu. Those that were drowned. And those that even, that maybe even those that survived did not know Hebrew. And even if they did, when they went back to Egypt, and let's say, hypothetically, they had then composed the, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the, the, the Kaddish poem of Ramses II, what Egyptian would understand what was going on? And what, toward what effect would you do that? It wouldn't make any sense. So that's why I, I, that's why I say that it is more likely that the Torah is, is, is appropriating, is, is anchoring its depiction of Yitzhak Mitzrayim in ways that B'nai Yisrael would find empowering because it takes down Ramses II. And I think that it contributes to the, now well, how does this contribute to uh, the claim that the that Yitzhak Mitzrayim actually happened? It's for the following reason. Um, uh, scholars, whenever they see parallels of this sort, will say, okay, the parallels do seem to be uh, 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 striking. Uh, uh, we want to know which direction, which I've spoken to already. And then the question is, but when? When could this have gone over? So here it's important to know that, that the, uh, the Kaddish poem of Ramses II 
had no currency in Egypt after the time of Ramses II. That means the 13th century BCE, okay, which is a time that could fit with Yisiaf Mitzrayim and Mahmoud Arsini. Uh, Egyptians never make it, it never becomes like their Shakespeare. No one copies it, no one mimics it, there's no reference to it ever again in Egyptian history. So if you see that the Torah is, is mimicking, is, is appropriating uh, 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 this work, then that must have begun around that time. It couldn't have been at a later time. In fact, no major Egyptian inscription has ever been found in Egyptian or in translation outside of the land of Egypt. None, none at all. You have little things, you know, like there's, there's actually, there's a, 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 an arch of Ramses II in Old Yafo. But that just has a few things. It has Ramsey's name on it and a couple of descriptions of him, but nothing, you know, no, no major text. No major text of any sort from Egypt has ever been found outside of Egypt. Uh, okay, that's fascinating. Maybe because their pictures were very difficult to uh, to draw. No, I'm just joking. But mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that, I guess I'm curious about reactions on both fronts, meaning I'm curious how these ideas were received from an academic perspective. I'm also curious mm-hmm. how they were received from within the Jewish world. I think also the point you made about being aware, right? You have to know which direction the influence is going. And part of that is also being aware who's the host culture and who's the minority culture. And sometimes, again, we look at the Torah and it's so looming for us and it's so central that we forget sort of the perspective on on where we stand in that in that cultural mm-hmm. setting but I, i'm curious about that about the question of responses um regarding yeah, historicity yeah. Okay. in both audiences okay so i'll say from the academic audience i once gave this uh this material as a as a presentation at a, at a uh, an academic conference in fact the largest academic conference in bible at the annual meeting of the society of biblical literature in north america and uh after I gave my talk, I was approached by a prominent Egyptologist, Israeli, uh, secular, totally secular. He came over to me, he said to me, I want you to know, I was looking, I was thumbing through the program book of the, of the conference and I saw your title, you know, uh, uh, Exodus 1415 and the Kaddish poem of Ramses II. And I saw, you know, your blurb with all these parallels. And I thought to myself, Mm, I know the Kaddish poem pretty well, and he really does, you know, in the original. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical. I'm, I'm really skeptical about this. I'm going to go to Berman's lecture. This is, he's telling me this. I'm going to go to Berman's lecture, and I'm going to play devil's advocate. And he came over to me after, and he says to me, now I'm coming over to tell you I couldn't. Okay? That's what he said to me. But he's only one, and there are others that have not accepted it. I will say, though, there is nobody that has written an academic response to it. Uh, 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 showing the fault in the argument, but this mm-hmm. this happens all the time in academia that people don't read each other's work. Um, but um, <laughs> so you know, I would say that that by and large, uh, what we typically call conservative scholars have applauded, and those that are skeptical are are skeptical. But again, you know, they haven't come back with the proofs or you know the faults that they see in uh, uh, in the work. Uh, you know, I think that it's mostly an issue of them coming with their pre- preconceived biases that there could never have been such a thing as, as an exodus, and therefore this can't be true. Like, that's just how it works. Uh, you know, and, I, I think that the whole question of, of the, histor- the historical uh, 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 accuracy or, or looking or the methodology of how we think about this question, we've largely done it the wrong way. The way in which it's always been done is, hmm, let's look in our Torah, 
and we see what it says. Now let's go look in our Egyptian sources and we don't find Moses or Aaron or plagues or Israelites or slaves upping and leaving or plagues. So the conclusion from that is it's not there. It doesn't exist. And I think there are reasons why all those things wouldn't appear even if it did exist because of the nature of, of the writings at the time and what they recorded and you know what 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 nothing remains from the area of Goshen anyway to this day because it's a wet region and therefore it doesn't nothing gets preserved. Um, but I think that there's another way to do it, and that's what I've been doing here, which is to say, not starting with the Torah and then seeing what does Egypt say about what the Torah says, but just the opposite. You start by looking in Egyptian sources and then you look in the Torah and say, hmm, what does the Torah seem to know about these Egyptian sources? And then we discover, as I've tried to lay out here, that the Torah is quite familiar with this Kaddish poem of Ramses II. So that's been the reaction uh, 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 in the scholarly world. I have managed to convince some of those that don't have a keep on my head. Uh, 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 others, I don't think, have really read it carefully. Or And I say no, no one has written you know, a really uh, a serious academic response to it. Uh, within the Torah world, so um, I, I, you know, I have this book you, you mentioned at the outset, Amima Amin, uh, 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 Biblical Criticism, Historical Accuracy, and the 13 Principles of Faith. And I would say that I've gotten more emails over, over the years, over the four years since it came out, uh, more emails from people who are right of center in our Orthodox world than left of center, or, you know, or, or even, you know, like, you know, down the middle yeshiva university for, for lack of a better term um you know i'm sure that uh, uh you know I, I live here in beit shemesh if i went across the street to you know some of the local uh, haredi yeshivas you know i i mean i would be crucified uh you know or thrown out as a heretic um but there's there's, there's an awful lot of uh, awful lot of uh, receptivity uh, uh for this that, that that that's what i've seen i, I haven't gotten it to yeah you know, by and large, uh, uh, well-received, I would say. You know, again, from people, you know, who might be listening to such a podcast or have studied at Bar-Ilan or studied at Yeshiva University, you know, or kind of are aware of complexity just generally, you know, in our in our world, the, t- the type of people that would be uh, listening to Yosef Arubo on a, on a weekly basis. I think uh, a painful, interesting test case that's also somewhat similar to this idea is even if you would look at, again, it would be interesting comparative study in a few years from now, look at the way this war was reported in Israel versus the way it was reported, I don't know, in Aza, mm-hmm. right? Or in other Arab, mm-hmm. meaning it's fascinating mm-hmm. to see that. And so something that for us looms so central or it's, you know, there's a particular narrative surrounding it. And you look the way it's presented in some other news source and it'll be something completely different. I mean, I think about, this is what I thought about when you first started speaking, even the way we receive the news here in Israel, I think currently we're very aware, I'm saying we, like my husband and I, when we look at it every day, we're very aware of how we feel we're being played even sometimes, meaning we have to be aware of the way that our texts are trying to shape the way we think. And I think that like, it's just mm-hmm. a, an example that is, you know, stands out for me because I feel like I'm, I'm living it every day, but certainly we would see the difference between, you know, how large the war looms here versus the news that they're reporting in the exact same day in a country that isn't even so far. So it's, mm-hmm. we live this, we live this every day, but we're not necessarily so aware of it. And when it comes to the mm-hmm. Torah text, mm-hmm. which is obviously so sacred and is held so close. So we, we tend not to, 
not to think about it in that way. But as we've shown in this conversation, mm-hmm. there's tremendous, there's tremendous profits to that, uh, to that kind of comparative study. Uh, and again, for those who may hear this today, and maybe it sort of gives them a bit of a, a kvetch in their stomach or in their heart. First of all, I encourage you to reach out. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to uh, to Rabbi Dr. Josh Berman, uh, but also to really think about this idea of how, you know, we love so many and respect and and cherish so many things in our lives, um, and think that they are unique, but not because they're the only. Uh, and I think that this kind of study of Tanakh is, first of all, a gift of the modern age, where we have these these yeah. texts to be able to to look forward to it, and sorry, to look deeper into into the text. Uh, and uh, and certainly commentators like Kusuto and Shadal and Radat Hoffman, who we'll be featuring in next week's conversation, uh, are scholars who were slowly really exposed to that whole world and Kusuto more in depth, I think, than any others and have really given us new perspectives, uh, new old perspectives right. on the Torah and sort of opened up our ears to be able to listen, hear, and inculcate the Torah into our lives in the way that perhaps the earliest generations did. Thank mm-hmm. you for this conversation. Really appreciate you being here again. Thank you, Yosefa, and uh, thank you to the listening audience. Call to. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. Thank you.